Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. We didn't know or think we'd meet our goal. We ended up breaking Kickstarter's record for their biggest selling music release ever. And I think at the time we, we sold $1.5 million worth of product to 10,000 backers. So it was proof of people's interest in, in the project and also the idea of, of wanting something tangible. And we made this design decision early on to make something really kind of sacred and holy, kind of like appropriate to the magnitude of the idea of it. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie. I'm Amy and this is Clever. And today we're talking to Grammy award-winning graphic designer, Lawrence Azarad. Wait, what? Grammy? Yep. He designed a box set for the Voyager Golden Record, a super cool project which we will hear all about. In fact, Lawrence has done a lot of work in the music business. You're probably familiar with Wilco's Yankee Hotel Foxtrot album cover featuring Chicago's famous corncob towers. Yep, that's his work. That's because he was an art director at Warner Brothers Records in the early part of his career. Now he runs his own shop, LAD Design, and he has worked with some super interesting clients like Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Beach Boys, John Legend, and so, so, so many more. Wow. Let's talk to Lawrence. I'm Lawrence Azarad. My home and where I live and work is Los Angeles. And I'm a graphic designer, creative director, because I love making things that have a creative impact on people's lives. Mm. Yes, that's a good reason. All right. So let's break it down to the very beginning. Mm. We want to know all about, you know, your childhood. You were born in L.A., right? I was born in L.A., one of the few native unicorn species. I feel like it's one of those cities where everybody else is from somewhere else. And if if I tell people that I'm actually from L.A., people look at me like I have like a horn coming out of my head or something like that. But it was, yeah, L.A. and L.A., L.A., L.A. proper. Like I grew up like right before the Beverly, right near the Beverly Center. I I remember going to the Beverly Center before it was the Beverly Center. It was a little amusement park called Beverly Park and there were pony rides and 
late roller coasters yes yeah were you are you from la no i'm not i'm from michigan but i've heard about this little amusement park because i just did a big project at the beverly center i love hearing about old la history yeah i cried i went on the last day (laughs) and my horse's name was pickles i was very sad (laughs) they closed down beverly park to build the Beverly Center, of all things, which, you know, by the time that was open, I was like a preteen slash young teen, of course, like at a mall like that, all of your worst teen like experiences socially happen. So it was very I try to avoid La Cienega and, and <laughs> as much as I can. Wait, so all of your adolescence went down at the mall at Beverly Center? <laughs> the whole adolescence, yeah. Actually, my school bus stop was actually in front of the Beverly Center. No, I, LA is, is oddly, and I don't really think about it that much, but it was kind of formative in, you know, developing who I later came to be. It was it, just like, you know, if you grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, like a steel town or Detroit, in Michigan, the automotive industry, LA, it is a factor, factory town where Hollywood is, is the factory. So mm-hmm. parents were producers or screenwriters, cousins were screenwriters. I, you know, went to this magnet school, Los Angeles Center for Studies and there were a lot of classmates who went on to become, you know, quite famous and cultural figures. And it's just kind of funny to look around at who is on TMZ today and, and know that you like sat next to them in math class and, you know, did funny things in art class together. So yeah. Or they used to wear high waters or pick their nose. <laughs> used to wear high waters. <laughs> Jimmy Z pants with the <laughs> strap. You know, we're talking like the advent of skateboard era thrash. Oh, also, you have the taunts for taunts type of thing, but, you know, classmates include everyone from, like, Monica Lewinsky to David Arquette to Leonardo DiCaprio. It was like a real motley crew of people. We weren't all friends all the time all together. It wasn't it was a sitcom or anything, but uh, we were you, all amongst in and around cut chemist. Uh, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. yeah even Gaio Siri, Madonna's manager. So it's. What did your parents do? We were normal. We were normal, which also kind of gave gave me a complex because I wasn't, you know, fabulous so it's it, <laughs> it definitely a good way to like give a kid like an inferiority complex no my, my mom was a dental hygienist and, and my dad worked in aerospace just like a lot of other southern california families so it was it was it was pretty regular i mean normal is all relative so sure but i mean looking back on it now don't you feel a little bit grateful that you had maybe a more grounded childhood instead of one that was distorted and inflated by these caricature like dimensions of hollywood absolutely it it definitely instilled you know you i think everything that's worth doing it, it you have to work for it nothing is handed to you and the idea of diligence and focus and and digging deep and and striving for your goals it sounds kind of like a poster you might find in Dunder Mifflin but you know it is true that you you do have to work hard for where you want to go and so i'm guessing your dental hygienist mom and aerospace dad didn't try and 
push you. They weren't stage parents. They didn't try and push you into the industry. No. <laughs> they didn't try no. you out for auditions and, and get you working. No, no. No, I, I, there was kind of like, it, it, kind of like everyone's doing it kind of thing, like mm-hmm. go to auditions, but it just wasn't in my, you know, path. So, but what was in my path really early on was, was art and even, you know, elementary school, junior high school, high school, it was just kind of what I loved to do, what I took to and, and making art. And, and it was, you know, an awesome way to get like a free period, like in advanced art placement classes. But it was something that I really enjoyed and it was fun. And, and just like that Malcolm Gladwell idea where like if you keep doing something and, and you actually enjoy doing it, it was something that I became good at. But this was more on the drawing and painting way before, you know, any computers, Macs or anything like that. It was, it was just, I loved, I loved making art, going to museums, looking at art and, and what kind of, what kind of stuff did you like? Were you into abstraction? Were you into portraiture? Were you into landscapes? What kind of art and culture were you consuming? It was a lot of, I'd say, like augmented naturalists kind of like, you know, ultimately you could classify it as illustrations, you know, paintings that told stories. Hockney was really huge at the time. There was there was a giant Hockney retrospective just right about as I was kind of coming into this age and capacity. So a painting that that painting of his the drive to the studio, the super long one with the Mulholland drive, you know, that I think, actually, I'm just realizing it now, but that was, that was really influential, just a lot of really bright colors, but also a winding narrative and, and just really kind of. And very LA. Yeah. Very LA. Yeah. There were a lot of freeways and roads and things like that in my paintings. Were you more (laughs) of like an academic creative or were you more of like a rebellious creative? Well, it was my way of rebelling because it was something that I could do, kind of be in my own world, but it wasn't, you know, like rebelling, like punk, anarchist, graffiti. Mm -hmm. Growing up, there was no bandwidth to kind of waste time and resources and effort to do bad things like that. It was hard to get into this magnet school. It was a privilege Mm -hmm. to be there. You know, my parents worked really hard to kind of set me up on this path. So that wasn't the type of thing that you felt like you wanted to throw away or rebel against or, or. Got it. Don't squander the opportunity. Exactly. So then you you got a BFA in graphic design from CCA in San Francisco. So how did you go from being interested in painting and drawing to making the leap to graphic design? I went to CCA to study illustration because it just seemed like a natural extension of what I was already doing in high school. And I think it was really because I didn't really even know what graphic design was actually Ironically, as a much younger kid, the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles was a big kind of influence on me. Deborah Sussman's graphics just kind of like transformed the city and the colors and the Oh, wow. uh, That would be influential. Cool. There was no Pinterest or Tumblr or any blogs like this. So to see your city like literally transformed through design, it was it was kind of like, wow, I, I think this is really awesome. But I didn't know that it was graphic design. So then later, 
fast forward to the very early 90s in San Francisco, it was kind of an era of the cult of the designer, high, high watermark for graphic design becoming the profession that it is today, you know, the era of annual reports and, and kind of like corporate design as, as this apex of quality and design. And you had people like Michael Cronin and Michael Vanderbilt and Michael Mannering and Lucille Tanazis and, and all these kind of design greats doing this really beautiful and elegant work. And they were doing work that was connecting to commerce and society and to people. And it was, it was a way where it was kind of, Hey, wait a minute, you could actually make art and make beautiful things that had a utility and a value beyond seeing it in a gallery. And that was really kind of exciting for me. Did you change your major? I changed my major. Yeah. Once I kind of became aware of what graphic design was, I, I, switched over and but reading things like communication arts was a bible and there used to be these hardbound design annuals and you would kind of like comb over them and just looking at the way they started to infuse photography and typography and telling stories in a way that was beyond just one artwork. And then, of course, you have these other disciplines of design, you know, signage, wayfinding environments. And it just was so much more of an expansive world. I fell in love with it. Of course, that was also still at the era when you, we were right on the edge of traditional old school graphic design and the very first computers. So just drawing the ink lines on Duraline and cutting the lines with razor blades. Yeah, I was going to ask you, did hand you skills. set yeah. type by hand and do your own lettering and stuff? I mean, did you, did you build your skills in the old world? Yeah, they, they, they kind of forced us to do both. Okay. It was weird because straddling the fence, you become kind of a master of, of neither. And the, I remember the teacher who taught the old school production techniques. You know, she was like a dinosaur from central casting <laughs> with the triangles and T-squares. And I just remember staying up all night drawing these straight lines on, on film. And she would hold the film up to the light to see that you had consistency of, in the line of, of the density of your ink. So like even in your line, she didn't want to see you having darker and lighter areas since inside this one tiny little line and the way you would draw a square the corners have to be perfect and all oh. this type of stuff but that is nothing compared to what you know the generations before me had to do with you know drawing the letter d you know two thousand times you know in basel switzerland until you were perfect it was very like karate kid kind of. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of value, though, because that sets the quality bar pretty high. And I don't know when you can issue things out so fast in the digital world. Sometimes I think the sense of like what good workmanship is gets a little blurry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, rigor and dedication and practice is is still important in no matter if you, if you're yeah, and no designing. matter the craft, yeah, yeah, ice skater or or whatever. But on the computer side, the skills, the tools weren't really there yet. I mean, I was on like Photoshop version two, and <laughs> I just remember having like a forty four megabyte 
Cyquest drive. The, the cartridge was like $80 and <laughs> like the biggest storage device ever. And now 40 megabytes is like the size of a typical email. So so let's let's talk about your professional life, because, I mean, you moved from from Los Angeles to San Francisco. So, so far, we're still in California and we're in the big cities. And from what I understand, you became an art director at Warner Brothers Records. Was that your first job out of college? And when did music start to factor into your interest in your work? It was basically my my second job out of college, but the first job was at a branding studio for just shy of a year. So pretty quickly, I I jumped right into the music industry. But the other jobs and and internships in college kind of taught me the fundamentals of working in an office and working with clients and branding and and all those kind of fundamentals. And, And there was just this very much in that era, like this kind of cult of a design studio and what a design studio should be and what it should look like. And with pentagram design being kind of like, you know, the ultimate and working at a record label was, was kind of very much not like that at all. So instead of being a designer who happened to work in the music industry, what ended up happening was I became someone who worked in the music industry who was a designer and Mm, mm -hmm. it was it was kind of like this shocking shocking role reversal because i'd always envisioned that i would be like in a design studio and there's like a certain way that people like look and dress in the environment and all that and and then here i was kind of put in this like completely different environment at Warner Brothers Records. And, you know, very quickly I fell in love with it because you were exposed to so many different types of people and aspects of our culture. The art department was a really wild and ruckus place at that time. And that was in the early 90s, mid 90s. But you're also working with A&R people and radio people and marketing directors and, and a whole cast of characters it was still at a time at the record label where you could still call it i guess the end of the glory days of the old school music industry where people were still there who had worked with van halen and fleetwood mac and prince when budgets were there was no limit to anything and and (laughs) there was this very kind of eclectic fun electric exciting environment to be in it was it was kind of like wow you can do this i I can't believe this was a job so right away very young i was thrown into working with a-list photographers with a-list budgets and you know people like you know mark seliger or you know utilizing photography from people like annie Leibowitz and having photo shoots at you know, Neutra houses in Los mm-hmm. Angeles are reserving Smashbox. And then, of course, you know, working with the bands, which was exciting and a revelation, too. And it formed a lot of my thinking because coming from art school, you're taught that you're the expert and your perspective in design. You know, you're the one who's equipped with how to translate this message kind of quickly. And it was a little bit of a rude awakening, but in, at, at, at the record label, you know, the, the recording artist, it's, it's their art. Yeah. You know, everybody refers to them as the artist. And I, at first I was like, wait, who's this artist that's showing up, you know, but, but you're not going to tell David Byrne or Miles Davis or Perry Farrell, you know, how, 
they should interpret their art, it, it very quickly becomes much more of a, I will ideally a symbiotic dialogue where you mm -hmm. can kind of craft this message together. And you, you have to be, I think, a little bit more forgiving. Even though you are an expert and these are your skills, it becomes more of a question of, you know, hey, how can I best translate what your music is all about in a way that the artist feels comfortable that this is a good representation of their music. Okay, so separately from your profession, were there any times where you were just like kind of freaking out at who was coming through the offices and who you were working with and and the artists that you were designing for? I mean, it oh, seems yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I mean, I one of the first biggest things I had done was the album package for Californication for the Red Hot Chili Peppers and. Anthony Kiedis practically lived in my office. There was like a, a couch behind me and my computer. And he and his management would come and kind of camp out in my office. And he would just use my office as an office and, you know, call MTV and producing. We're going to go to this show and that show. And as he's on the phone, he'd be watching what I was doing on the computer. And he could kind of like interrupt the call and just say a, a little lower, a little higher and just... <laughs> Um, but yeah, there, there was, it was it, every now and then late in the art department, you know, Neil Young would just call the art department with like question about his record on the schedule, just kind of like, oh my God, I'm talking to Neil Young. Or, <laughs> it was still an era where there were, you know, these kind of like classic legends, you know, definitely was a thrill to get to make art for David Byrne. So cool. Yeah. So cool. So so here's what I'm thinking, too, though. Like, you're saying it was the end of the glory days. And, like, the 90s was also the time when all the major record labels were, like, looking for the next Seattle or the next grunge, the mm -hmm. next Nirvana. And then Napster and streaming started happening, and the sales of CDs started dis declining, and people started getting dropped from record labels. And, I mean, did you, were you there? Did you feel the industry anxiety? while you were still there or did you leave before? No, that's a great question. I was there when Napster came along and the record industry didn't take it seriously. And uh -huh. I remember when people were kind of circulating articles on, on email, like, is this like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What is this thing? Well, this is not going to be a problem. It was, it was just kind of seem to be and to, to the fault of the record companies that well people are always going to buy this and people are always going to go to stores and people are always going to to value this and and i don't think anybody could foresee the ease of piracy and and that there was this kind of tectonic shift in in value that you know a new generation came along and this this material is free like listening to the radio why shouldn't I listen to it for free, you know, and at every revolution in technology, people had warned that, well, these problems had come before and they'd never really manifested. But this, this time it caught up with them before it was the realization was made that they had to kind of get on board with this technology. I think the, the relationship to music had changed and that was part of the change in the label that led to me going out on my own. But much later in, in our career here, we have an initiative that 
is called Designing for the Future of Music. And we, we're realizing that now we have a much different relationship with how we discover and value music. So this initiative that we've created is, is really about how can we use design to make the connection to music deeper again, because those album covers and, and that. Oh, work. I know. I miss yeah. the tangibility of that. I mm-hmm. miss pulling open the CD and reading all the liner notes. And even before that, you know, the, the vinyl records and, and I don't know, I used to sit and stare at it while I would listen to the music and it would, it would absolutely sort of pave the path of my imagination. Mm-hmm. As, yeah. And I miss that. And not only that, but, and we can, ugh, we, we don't have time to go all into the digital world, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. now I can't even remember what I have or what I like because I don't have that tangible connection. But but moving on, I want to know, so you're kind of well-known also for a very popular Wilco album cover. Yes. I know you did a lot of work with Wilco. Mm-hmm. And mm. this album cover for Yankee Hotel Foxtrot famously features the Chicago Corn Cob mm-hmm. Towers. Did that project, so were you on that project at Warner Brothers, or did, did uh. that happen? I know Wilco was dropped from Warner Brothers yeah. and then re-signed with a subsidiary and that was all happening and Gary Hustwit was documenting it in uh, I'm Trying to Break Your Heart. Where were you at in that whole process? I was in that maelstrom of a scene and, and <laughs> okay. coincidentally it was right when I left the label so it was a very kind of tumultuous time for me personally it just it seemed like it was this storm of change I got on board with the Wilco camp right at the end of being there and, and they were still like a very small band and then I worked on Summer Teeth and then as Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was coming together you have the Gary Hustwood film directed by Sam Jones and there was this excitement that, that something big was happening and they were kind of harbingers for the, the changes in the music industry and I think bands taking a different type of ownership and agency for their own music and standing up for doing what they wanted to do the way they wanted to do it. The fight that broke out and that's reflected in the movie was was very kind of reflective of a lot of things happening in the culture relationships between artists and labels but also the record was really brilliant but i was i was there during all of that there during a lot of the filming of the record it was out in chicago at their studio during a lot of the photographing for that session and we really had no idea where we were going with the cover of that record there was this idea to include lots of different buildings of chicago and and have these kind of like almost to bring it back to david hockney but like hockney-esque collages and I've worked with Jeff Tweedy a long time and, and the way it usually works with, with Jeff is, is there's a large and long kind of exploration of a lot of different options, hundreds of options. Mm-hmm. But usually what we do with Wilco is, is very concise and simple and, and there's a strength in that. And I think that's why that cover kind of resonates with a lot of people. But Having explored so many other things, we know that when we've arrived finally at that point, it's it's the right decision. And so, yeah, I had moved and left the label and starting to set up shop. So we, we created that cover like in an old apartment. I had like 
18 <laughs> years ago. Wow. I mean, there was all different kinds of thoughts and, and just the idea to clip it out and keep it simple. And, and also a lot of people don't know that there were four different covers. There's an addition of, there was a, a green one, a white one, a blue one, and then the most mm -hmm. famous ones, the khaki one. So none mm -hmm. such ran all four of them. And the fact that we had the O card was a big deal. But it was also like right not that long after 9-11 and the idea of two towers and yeah. just and then there's this theory that the song ashes of american flag on that record kind of refers to 9-11 but it it doesn't the music was written before 9-11 i think though like a lot of great records that are known for their covers that's an amazing record musically and you can't separate one from the other and it's really fulfilling as a designer, because like I said at the very beginning, my ultimate goal is to make work that means something for people. Mm -hmm. And if I look at the hashtag, hashtag Wilco Towers and see all the photos of the Bertrand Goldberg building, that's, that's fulfilling to me that, that people appreciate that art. It means something to them. It reminds them of this music and yeah, it does forge that connection you were talking about. And what a great way, like what a very strong foundation to start your own shop on, on the heels of such a strong record cover. I mean, did that get you off and running in terms of your own studio? It was, yeah, I had kind of left Warner with like some bands, a few bands that I was working with. Katie Lang was one of them. It was, it was, it was very frightening to kind of go off on my own. And you, you, you just don't know if you're going to make it. I remember having to like use my own credit card to pay for this illustration of Katie Lang that was done by Al Hirschfield, who's no longer with us anymore. And just, you know, charging $9,000 on my credit card to pay for just a lot of scary leaps. And you just, expect the ground to kind of catch you beneath that but and it did it did <laughs> the, 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 the Yankee Hotel wasn't it wasn't like an instant classic I mean it was it was praised by the critics when it came out but I think that record and the importance of it is it was something a slow that build yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so I wasn't able to kind of I mean I was happy to say like hey I work with Wilco but but you weren't this instant hotshot. No, like, no, no, no. Yeah. Not by a long shot. Now when people say like, oh, you did Yankee Hotel. And it's it's almost like deceptively simple, the cover. But it's, it's <laughs> nice that um, that it, 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 it means so much to me. Until you get to a certain generation, then you have kids asking about some type of Hotel Fox thing. Like what? You know? <laughs> then you're just like, okay, well, you're under... 35. So. <laughs> I wonder what's going to become like the album cover of the next generation of kids. Well, that's, that's part of what we're aiming to uncover in this designing the future of music. Mm -hmm. and, and we're going to be, we are hosting and sponsoring academic programs and workshops and clinics to explore that very question. And, and, and perhaps, and like you allude to, perhaps it's not an album cover at all. Mm -hmm. And if looking back in art history, album art history, it was never just the cover itself right. either, you know, like the clothes that Vivian Westwood put out on the street or how, you know, fans of Quadrophenia dressed or, you know, public enemy. It, it was about, you know, this kind of comprehensive, holistic mosaic of 
pieces mm -hmm. and, and we need to kind of uncover new touch points of design and technology that, that are meaningful again. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners. We're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters I-C-F-F. -F. 
www.thepowerofyou.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So the next step in your career that I'd like to talk about that's a big milestone is that you won a Grammy. A Grammy! (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty awesome. Can you just talk about that for a minute? Because let me just tell our listeners first. So you won a Grammy this year, 2018, for Best Boxed or Special Limited Edition Package for the Voyager Golden Record. So could you talk about what that Voyager Golden Record is and then how that project came to be? You know, this definitely by far one of the most fulfilling projects I've been lucky to be a part of. It's a really weird project. Some people will know about it, remember it from their childhood. Some people some people don't. When, the, the, when you learn about it, it's kind of a mind-blowing thing. But in 1977, the scientists at NASA figured out that the way the planets were lining up in our solar system, that if they sent out two probes at a certain trajectory, certain speed, they would pass perfectly by all the planets in our solar system. We had never been, had close-up looks at Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, any planetary neighbors. And so that was that was really the mission to go and, and photograph our solar system. So Carl Sagan led a team of scientists and artists and cultural thinkers out of Cornell University that they, they thought that if extraterrestrials exist, And if they ever happen to come in contact with the spacecraft, wouldn't it be great to put a message from humanity on the spacecraft? And so attached to the records that were launched in 77 are, are, there's one on each spacecraft. It's, it's a, it's a record. It's a gold plated record in a gold case and it's on there and it will be on there forever. Voyager 1 left our solar system just a couple of years ago. It's currently 11.7 billion miles away and it's traveling 11 miles a second. And the record itself is a compilation of all the sounds of humanity, right? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a wild wild portrait of who we are. There's Music from all different cultures. They had the ethnomusicologist Alan Lomax kind of basically create the first world music tape. So you have things on there from like the Solomon Islands, but there's also Bach and Beethoven all the way up to Chuck Berry. That's the most contemporary music on there. But they really worked hard to get kind of a spectrum of cultural music in there. Then there's greetings from 55 human languages. And then freakishly enough, 
encoded in the grooves of the record in very, very, very early digital image coding are images that tell the story of humanity, all the way from like our earliest mathematical systems to our biology, to our habitats, our family structure, how we eat, drink, trees, continents, our technology, our, our physiology. So it's this really kind of exotic kind of portrait of humanity. The neat thing about it well, there's a lot of neat things about that, but there's no <laughs> images of, of war or disease or, or poverty on the record that it's this like idealistic self-portrait. So okay. it's, it's, it, we like to think that it's something for us here on earth to aspire to. Okay. So that went, that got shot out to space in 77 mm-hmm. and, and I'm sure there was, you know, a lot of media describing the record and all of that, but but your project came together recently as a reissue. They yeah. made that record available to the public, right? Yes, yes. And it had never really been made public professionally, comprehensively at the highest level of quality. Bits and pieces of it existed online. Images from the, the images on the disc were in poor quality on the internet. And people even Carl Sagan had tried to release the record over the years and, and nobody ever kind of like, why, you know, who's, who's, there's also, also on the record is all these audio, this audio poem sounds of earth. So there's like rain and whales and wolves and heartbeats and a baby crying. It, it just seemed too esoteric. So two other partners in the project, they, they came to me and they had this idea. A lot of people I think had this idea. Wouldn't it be fun what if we could release this? But challenges in clearance and permission and acquiring the master tapes and acquiring the original images, it just seemed like too Herculean of a task. Mm-hmm. My friend and colleague, David Peskovitz, said, hey, had you ever heard of the Voyager? And I, I had like a fleeting knowledge of it. Would you want to work on the reissue? I'm like, yeah, of course. So it seemed like the perfect thing to take to Kickstarter. So we released it on Kickstarter. We didn't know or think we'd meet our goal. We ended up breaking Kickstarter's record for their biggest selling music release ever. And I think at the time we, we sold $1.5 million worth of product to 10,000 backers. So it was proof of people's interest in, in the project and also the idea of, of wanting something tangible. And we made this design decision early on to make something really kind of sacred and holy, kind of like appropriate to the magnitude of the idea of it. Yeah. Because, you know, the thing was done in the 70s and and the technology was very kind of retro and we, we could have definitely done something in that kind of look and feel. But we wanted something to that reflected this like good God, this is like this holy museum kind of like almost like the monolith in 2001. You know, it's it's black with this gold foil. And we went to extreme lengths to digitize everything properly. And, and at least on the, the visual side, my design colleague, Frankie Hammersma and I went to, you know, we had to recreate 
original drawings in Vector for the first time, the, the images that we found in a metal box from one of the original committee members that had never been exposed before. Our set of images is even better than the, the ones in the archive at JPL. And then our partners on the other side of the project did equally insane things on, on the music side of things, like uncovering the original master tapes from a vault in, in Sony in New York. You know, a lot of things like we didn't know if they would shake out or line up or we would get the permission or blessing from the original committee members. And it was really sweet when it did come out. Carl Sagan's widow, Andrean, she really felt like we, we did honor the legacy of the project. And, and a lot of people have kind of tried to piggyback on, on the Voyager. There's a lot of Voyager stuff out there, earrings and mugs and shirts and bags and things like that. But we wanted to really have this thing be like the, the gold standard, if you excuse yeah. the pun. <laughs> is it still available? Like, can regular people buy it? They can buy it. There's a, a second edition, which is at available at ozmarecords.com, O-Z-M-A-R-E-C-O-R-D-S. The press that we got was, was phenomenal. You know, like everything from the New York Times and Washington Post and the Guardian Atlantic. And, but all of it really goes, I think, to say that especially in the time and era that we live in today, that we need messages of hope and aspiration. And there's this very famous speech by Carl Sagan called The Pale Blue Dot. And if you're not familiar with it, I definitely recommend bringing it up on YouTube. It's just three minutes long and, and something's wrong with you if it doesn't bring tears to your eyes. But it's... <laughs> You know, we, we, we live on this tiny speck in like this vast universe and this speck has been, you know, floating for billions of years and, and it will continue to. So the idea of, you know, treating each other kindly, honoring the world that we live in, in the time that we live on it, these are all kind of issues that you're reminded of when you when you kind of understand the vastness of the cosmos so yeah this this project was kind of and that's i think why the press covered it so so broadly that it that it really strikes mm. to a, like a a core human interest that yes well what a what a meaningful project to begin with in 1977 and then what an honor and accomplishment for you to be able to sort of pull it together and package it so timelessly for the future and for now and the future. Yeah. Yeah. And congratulations on winning the Grammy. <laughs> That's fun. It's super fun. It's, it's, <laughs> it's nice. Look, I know a lot of people say this, but when you see the posts on Instagram, especially on the original Kickstarter things where like kids and people unwrapping it at Christmas and like it, people posting it's here, it's here, it's here. And you can see their joy, you know, that is really, it's equal to the Grammy. I'll, I'll certainly say that, you know. Well, yes, for sure. And you started this whole thing off by talking about you love making design that impacts people. And so when you see those posts, then you're getting like that kind of feedback. I'm sure it juices your heart in the best possible way. And a Grammy is a different kind of an accolade, but they're both pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it is. Neil deGrasse Tyson actually presented our category 
And I had dedicated our Grammy to Chuck Berry because he passed away last year, the year that, you know, we finished this. And he's on the Voyager record. And, and I, from the stage and my acceptance speech while I was dedicating it, I said that he's on there forever, floating 13.5 billion miles in space. And I... I could tell something was happening behind me because, like, the audience is starting to laugh. And I basically, Neil deGrasse Tyson was, like, correcting me on being wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I turned around and my partners kind of gave, like, it's like a plus or minus is what Neil deGrasse said. (laughs) Well, I said 13.5, it's 11.7 billion miles away. So I I was off by, by... several billion miles but you know you it's the only and of course it was kind of sweet that neil was like the only guy who could really like right the only expert who could correct from that was astrophysics (laughs) (laughs) it's the only human-made thing that's ever left our solar system Mm -hmm. so wow it's it's out there all right so let's i know you have an upcoming project that's also very exciting yes it's a book it's a book called supersonic the design and lifestyle of concord and i know that concord is the what do you what do you call it it's a jet that was able to break the sound barrier yes yes well in a sentence it's the world's only luxury supersonic aircraft i mean a lot of people just remember the jj fad song supersonic but <laughs> it, you know it's it's flying twice the speed of sound yeah and I've heard stories of people who've been inside and they heard the sonic boom. And I need to know, did you ride it? Did you fly this, the Concorde? I did, I, yeah. You, you did? Yeah. Oh my God, yeah. it's always been a yeah. goal of mine, but they decommissioned it yeah. before I was able to achieve that goal. Yeah. I even have pictures I drew of me on the Concorde. Really? Well, you know, <laughs> yes. I, I went on my 30th birthday. I, they had already announced the end, so it was kind of like a now or never type of thing. I went in July. They ended it in October. And, you know, again, this was pre-iPhone, pre-Instagram for sure, but I took a selfie. Ridiculously, I went alone. It was the shortest birthday of my life because I went counter-rotation to the earth. But I took a selfie (laughs) in my seat. You're also a little buzzed because they just ply you with, like, champagne and and fine wine, everything. Oh, I want to do it. (laughs) That's my author photo in the book, a 30-year-old version of myself. (laughs) It's a wild experience. The plane was a remarkable feat of design and engineering, and, and the aircraft itself was almost like this beautiful sculpture, like a swan. That was all kind of informed by the physics of, of something being able to fly 1,400 miles an hour. But everything that the passenger came into contact with, everything from the seats to your luggage tags to the forks and knives to your menus was designed by the world's best designers and the airlines that operated it decided that they wanted to kind of create this premium travel experience so it became this kind of rarefied world of design where fabulous people would fly on this fabulous plane and have this kind of amazing experience and and just really quickly what supersonic meant was that you're actually flying faster than the rotation of the earth itself and you're you're flying double the speed of any normal airplane so you it's being since it flew faster than the earth moves you could go to your destination in real local time and be there before the time you left your departure spot so you could kind of go back in time 
and it also flew at twice the altitude. So you're at the edge of the stratosphere. So at that point, you can see the curvature of the Earth. So I'm sorry to the flat earthers out there, but <laughs> wow, I have seen it. And the <laughs> yeah, but you were drunk. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the sky is black at, at the edge there. So whoa! Uh, so you can see both the black and the blue. <gasps> you see the black so and the cool. blue, and you definitely get this much more kind of like global. Like you see weather patterns and stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I have like, I'm sweating and I have goosebumps at the same time. <laughs> it's it's so wild. excited. Yeah. And I mean, this wasn't the case on my flight, but if you saw a regular airplane 30,000 feet below you traveling in the same direction, that airplane would be appear to be flying backwards because you were going twice the speed of that they would do these crazy things where they would like have a regular plane take off on one side of the atlantic and then concord on the other and concord like lap the plane like go what to paris and then back to new york before the the other plane got to new york so yeah it was it was basically like being in a fighter jet with a hundred other people drinking fine champagne and and you know your your passengers are Mick Jagger and Andy Warhol and and Phil Collins and Joan Collins. But Uh, it wasn't intended to be this like super fabulous thing for the 1%. It was this, the next step in mm -hmm. passenger travel. And it's another project that I'm interested in because of this human ideal. And it was at the, the dawn of the jet age and also at the same time as the Apollo era. And there were going to be many, many, many Concords and all the airlines were going to fly them. You know, United Airlines and American Airlines, they all had orders for Concord. So you could go from New York to Los Angeles in, in you know, two hours and change. You could go to New York and back in the same day. But the, America was building their own Concorde. It was going to be bigger and faster, much faster, actually. The Soviets built one. And because of the geopolitics of the whole race, they made it very difficult for Concorde to kind of operate in real terms. So all the airlines mm-hmm. dropped their orders. And it went from, you know, the idea of, you know, this was next generation of airplane to there just being 16 of them so then the airlines were stuck with these like super expensive now ultra custom like high performance speed cars and that's when they made the decision like well i guess since we have these things we'll just make it this kind of ultimate experience and that's when they brought on board like raymond lowey and andre putnam and terence conrad and all these great designers to design the interiors and the elements and that's what the book is really about I get it. Wow. So that is a very fascinating project, and I'm looking forward to that. But we need to talk about your creative process. Yes. So at this stage in your career, how would you describe your creative process? And is a fair amount of it like just choosing which projects you want to work on? Or is a lot of it about the capturing and recording of your ideas and your inspiration? Or... Can you give us a sense of what it's like for you? Yeah, that's a great question. To me, the answer is really about 
Developing a rigor and a dedication and a focus. You have to work hard at these things and dedicate yourself to your craft. And and there was a time where, you know, when I was much younger and, and more naive and, and a little less realistic, thinking that things were just going to happen. And there was kind of a, a challenging point where there's a realization that, you know, things don't just get handed to you and, and you have to really make things happen yourself. So that, that kind of manifested in me starting at least in a very small step with spending 10 minutes a day with a journal and just saying like, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And, and how am I going to do it? And why is being a designer important to me? What are the kind of core fundamentals that I believe in as far as being a designer and really showing up every day and doing it every day and blocking out time for working on creative endeavors and not being the dog that chases its tail. I know that creative processes are very different for all different kinds of individuals. Some people are a lot more free and, and it happens when it happens or let the muse come when it does. But to me, it's, it's really about plugging into dedication on a consistent basis. And in the case of the Concord project, I've been obsessed with the Concord story for as long as I can remember. And I'd wanted to work on this book for about 15 years. And I'd been working on it off and on, not working, working. And a lot of publishers passed on the book, but just kept plugging at it and doing it and and sending up proposals. And And it wasn't until someone that I had sent a proposal to probably 12 years later, came back and said, hey, you sent this proposal to me. Let's make this happen. I kind of liken it to, you know, that that kid who wants to be a basketball player is out there at 11 o'clock at night and, sh- and shooting hoops. And, um, <laughs> you know, the ice skater that's out there at, at six in the morning. It's it's just, you, you just... This is the second time you've brought up ice skating. I know, I know. Well, <laughs> I can't ice skate. Is there something but, else we need to know no, about? no. Do you feel like that 10 minutes a day with your journal, that sort of exercise, that ritual primes you, your brain and your attitude for the day? It's a start and it, it does, okay. it's, it, it primes the, the morning. Usually by the time like we're halfway through the morning, there's like the reality of other stresses. One of the things I try to remember in that, that, 10 minutes is to come back to presence and, and, you know, stay focused on, on being present minded. But, you know, we all get stresses and and emergencies and fire drills and emails and and all of those things. But at least there's that moment where you can reset and regroup and, and kind of come back to the core fundamentals. Have you developed any other kind of creative habits or positive habits or strategies to kind of get yourself into that creative mood. There are a lot of people we've talked to in the past that have very specific rituals and then some people just work until it comes to them. Do you have any like thing that you do on a regular basis? Well, I, I, you know, do try to practice mindfulness and, and that comes with some meditation that, that usually is grouped with the journal keeping when it comes down to actually seriously truly diving into real creative that requires being diligent about thinking and research and drilling into the core fundamental ideas. But there is no, I don't, you know, have a a certain shirt or a talisman (laughs) or, or, or a dance or a chance or anything like that. But, but it is, I think it is about 
bringing a seriousness to, to that aspect of the design. And, and also, ever since working in the music industry, music is, has been kind of a fundamental aspect of setting the creative mood. So whatever I'm working on, I try to listen to a similar type of music. Mm. So you've worked on projects that touch on breaking the sound barrier, transcending earth, humanity, atmosphere, even the solar system. But are there any barriers or boundaries that you are personally interested in breaking or transcending? To me, our next biggest challenge that we're working on here is this idea, this designing the future of music and this boundary of how we can connect to music through design in a deeper way and in a in a streaming world. And it's, it's a solution that we haven't fully uncovered yet. There, there are a lot of people doing a lot of really wonderful and innovative things in this space, but there's a lot more work to be done to have kind of a breakthrough moment at large for everyone to kind of appreciate the intersection of design and music again. So pushing that boundary, setting a stage for more creativity there through these workshops that we're developing and, and the schools that we're working with, that to us is, is a really, as a boundary we want, we want to conquer. Is this an ongoing project and is it currently available for people to take these workshops or is this something you're still kind of in the process of creating? We're building collaborative relationships with a couple different colleges and universities and we've been met with some some really exciting and favorable responses and ultimately we'd love to see this happen in workshops that are available to high school students and possibly younger across a whole spectrum of cultural and economic backgrounds but that that's a little bit further down the road and this idea of the connection between design and music in a technology world has been kind of our next big concept that that is has been brewing. We're working on a museum exhibit on the topic and a couple other outlets. All of them, though, Voyager, Concord, and, and the music project is, is really about how can we use creativity to make our human experience better. Well, speaking of that, you personally, your human experience... What's your next step on the path to self-actualization? You talked about becoming more mindful. Where's your growth? It's important to for me to continue evolving towards quality and setting benchmarks for growth and looking at, you know, who can advise me on that? Where can I find those benchmarks in myself? We've had a really nice run so far, how can we find a new North Star and actually take the steps to get to it? And what are those steps? And all of those sound like kind of dreamy, hopeful prospects, but there's actually a... Yeah, I want some concrete. Oh, Lawrence, how yeah. is Lawrence making Lawrence better? How is Lawrence enhancing Lawrence's life? Yeah. Are you, do you <laughs> it comes to, I mean, there, there are definitely, you know, creative 
consultants who I've talked to as far as like making my practice more professional, stepping in. Yeah, but not even your practice. Oh, internally. Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Are you spiritual? Are you like, do you have plans to climb a mountain? Do you have a family? Like, yeah, well, I, my wife and I both work very hard and we definitely need to spend more time enjoying the, the, the life that we have. You know, we, 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 there is this realization that, you know, we, we, when you have your own studio, it's hard to get away. Mm-hmm. So there, there is, I couldn't even pull you away from it in this talk. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, you mean there's something else outside of life? We don't have, kids. we have a lovely dog. We adore spending time together and it's important to make sure that we do spend more time together because it's easy to turn around and, and, I just had my 45th birthday and it's kind of like, well, how did, how did that happen? But there's no, there's no quest to India on the books. There's okay. no mountains <laughs> Yet. we're climbing. I mean, I love California. So any time we can spend in the central coast, Big Sur, the ocean, mm-hmm. the mountains, the trees, time together. It's okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad to know it's not just all work. No. That makes me happy. No, no. we do have a life outside of that. Uh, There is a winery client of ours in Carmel, and that makes it fun to go there, but that's as far as the work creeps into the book. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So if we were to like fast forward 20 or 30 years, you know, as a creative, most people are creative until they die. So, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a time when you're kind of going to retire, but... I mean, creatively, like, where do you see what you're doing in 20 or 30 years? Mm, mm. Well, I see uh, continually to grow on a path of evolution towards quality. I mean, what that means is is, is continuing to do work of, of meaning and, and that's valuable design wise mm-hmm. and that also that there is a happiness in the work that you're doing, that you're working for clients that are fulfilling, that don't make you feel like junk, that your contribution is valued. And on our Concord book, Sir Terence Conran wrote our foreword, and he is a design legend, a British design legend. He's 86 years old now and still smokes cigars. And <laughs> he was one of the designers of the interiors of Concord. And he just wrote the most eloquent forward for us that is really kind of poetic but to be in a place like that where you're still creating work that's meaningful and you're enjoying it because again to use a bumper sticker euphemism it's not about the finish line but it's about the journey and you have to enjoy the work you're doing while you're doing it and I want to be able to look back when I'm 86 and and not just look back but look around me at at the present and and be happy and proud of of the work that I've done and contributed to society. Where can our listeners find you on the web and social media and keep an eye out for this book, Supersonic? We have a website for the book, supersonicbook.com. It's also on Amazon and there's an order button on the website. You can get it from Penguin and Random House. It comes out September 18th and will be at Booksellers worldwide. I'm on Instagram at LAD underscore design, lad design. And of course, our website is LADdesign.net. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Mm -hmm. I'm so, so jealous 
A, all of the shoulders you've brushed with the musical greats, and B, that you kind of fly on a concord. Oh, well, if you get the book, it's a glimpse into what it was like. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Okay. Bye. What? He's won a Grammy and flown on the Concorde. I well, I know the Grammy's not as big as like touching people's hearts and stuff, but it's still cool. <laughs> yeah, but how many designers do you know who won a Grammy? Uh, not that many. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's. Uh, it's the subject matter of what he works on is so super cool. I mean, breaking the sound barrier, the Voyager, which is fascinating to me. You know, music, obviously with some of leg- legendary musicians. Just uh, super cool. What I l- a lucky guy. <laughs> I, well, I know. And is it luck or did he... Did well, he, super you know, talented too, obviously. Yeah, but I mean, also, it's I, I think it's choices he made. I mean, that Voyager project came together through Kickstarter, which means there wasn't like some big client who yeah. came to him with a bunch of money and said, why don't you design this? There was a lot of initiative and, and momentum that had to be put into it on the front end and I love how thoughtful he is about I mean it was clearly a choice and a decision not to go retro not to not to make the current packaging represent the 1977 project but to pay homage to the whole thing and think about it in a grander context of all time and eternity and and space and what if terrestrials find this obviously they're not going to find his box set Maybe they will. If they come to Earth. Who knows? <laughs> what if they did? What if a spaceship landed on Earth and they could compare the original Voyager 1 record <laughs> with Lawrence's box set? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know. It depends on... <laughs> like for, It depends on if aliens know anything about design. Well, I'm just thinking, like... <laughs> What if aliens are collectors, too? And they're like, oh, my God, I have these two really limited edition pieces. <laughs> I need to know more about these drawings you have of you on the Concorde. Oh, my God. OK, I'll tell you. <laughs> so <laughs> when I decided that it was a personal goal of mine to ride the Concorde, it was before it was decommissioned. I, you know, looked up some images with all the patrons flying the Concorde and it was a sea of middle-aged white men because that's who could afford to fly the Concorde I didn't see Mick Jagger I saw a bunch of businessmen and so I printed out that photo and then I took one of the businessmen and I I gave him like long brown hair and red lips (laughs) (laughs) and I wrote below it this is me on the Concorde and I pinned it up on my board it was like a vision are you a are you like a firm believer in if you like wi- will it to the universe, like physically write it down or something that it's bound to come true? I want to believe that so bad, but I did that with the Concord and they decommissioned it. I mean, maybe it could yeah, happen but, again in the future. Well, they're doing those space missions now. So maybe it, the Concord was just like peanuts compared to being in a spaceship. I already got space pants. There you go. You know why? <laughs> Ready. Do you know that that line? <laughs> Are no. those are those space pants you're wearing? Because oh, your yeah. ass is out of this world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I don't know. I would like to thank. I do think that if you put something out there, it's more likely to come back to you. In in response to your first question, but mm. firm believer, I'm still testing it. Yeah. How about you? Do you believe in that? Um, 
I, I'm a firm believer in you. You kind of make your own destiny with your own choices. But I mean, I'm not one to just try anything. I'm not I'm not superstitious, but like I won't naysay anything if I think like, oh, maybe it'll work. Yeah. And I, I think both of those are true in that the first step of making a choice or a decision for yourself and then enacting it is somehow admitting it to yourself and yeah and, and a lot it. of times yeah. it's just writing it down and seeing it on paper is somehow more effective in your brain like taking yeah. notes in class yeah totally I'm, I'm a- gonna go listen to Wilco now I'm just yeah. really in the mood <laughs> <laughs> hey you guys we want to give a special thank you to all of you guys for listening. We've gotten some really nice reviews online and some nice feedback in emails and on social. And we want to encourage you to keep it up because it keeps us going and we love it. And please subscribe, rate and review and do all that business. It really, really helps us. And be sure to go to cleverpodcast.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Lawrence's work. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast, so please connect with us there too. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media and edited by Ty Navaris and Alex Perez with music by L1011. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.